0: Hey, y'all. I'm Mary Payne Gilbert, and this is my podcast, Payne in the Pod. Have y'all heard the podcast, Over My Dead Body? If you haven't, you need to go and listen right now and then come back and hear this interview because there might be some spoilers, or just listen now if you don't mind the spoilers. For those who aren't familiar with the podcast, Over My Dead Body is the story of two successful and attractive lawyers whose wedding is so fancy, it's featured in the New York Times, but when this perfect couple falls apart, it leads to a bad breakup, a worse divorce, and a murder case involving high-priced lawyers and very unexpected co-conspirators. The story in this podcast says as much about love, marriage, and family as it does to the links that people will go to hold on to these things and to get what they want. This story, of course, is right up my alley. I love a murder. I love a love story gone wrong. I love a scorned family, all these things. And there's also some thugs in it. I love a. I love a good uh, random thug in the story. So today I have Eric Benson, who did a lot of the reporting for this podcast, and I'm really pumped that he agreed to join me today to talk about it. So thank you for coming on and talking with me today, Eric.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Mary Payne.
0: So, tell me, what was your exact role in reporting on the podcast? I feel like you're like the 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 brains, the boots on the ground.
1: Well, you know, I, it was a it was a partnership, kind of creatively. So, Matt Matt Cher and I. Matt is the the host. Um, you know, he and I split the duties for reporting and writing the show. You know, Matt came to me quite a while ago now, almost two years ago uh with this story this kind of unbelievable story that he had really happened upon in kind of an amazing way which we can get into maybe later um and he he and i had known each other for a while and he said do you want to do a podcast together and so we went about kind of thinking about what that podcast would be sort of what the arc of a series would be uh, you know eventually wondery uh, got involved and and also was heavily involved in shaping it. But yeah, the, the two of us often were doing interviews together with people. Sometimes we did interviews separately uh, and we wrote, you know, we wrote drafts of the scripts and revised scripts together.
0: Yeah. And so that, that was going to be my next question was, how did you find out about this story? I, it seems to me it's kind of a local to Florida story, but how, how so since neither one of you live in Florida, how exactly did you come to find it?
1: I love the story of how Matt found this story because it, it really is kind of twisty, turny and involves a whole completely different crime case. So uh, Matt was writing a story for a GQ magazine about a case in New York uh, in the in the Orthodox Jewish community. And basically the, the story is if you want to get a divorce and you're, you're married in, in that Orthodox community, uh, only the man can grant the divorce. So if you are a woman in a marriage and you're unhappy and and your husband doesn't want to grant you a divorce, you're kind of out of luck. So it kind of filling in this uh, this 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 void in the Orthodox community was uh, was a group of rabbis who would basically convince the man that he needed to to give a, a divorce to his wife. And I think it would it would start out with kind of light coercion, and then kind of escalate very quickly into uh, really torture. And so the the ringleader of this group of rabbis was called the prod Father. Uh, he he was, um, uh, you know, he had been arrested and, and had been indicted by the federal government along with an accomplice. And Matt was writing about this kind of spectacular case. I mean, you don't usually think of rabbis as torturers uh and and kind of mobsters basically wow and uh so matt was writing about this for gq and story came out you know thought he was kind of done with it and then he got an email saying you know my friend had been a lawyer uh you know on that case and actually as the case was going on he was murdered and that friend was dan markell who's the the center of our podcast And when Dan was killed uh, July 18th of 2014, it was a great mystery of, you know, who had done this. There were there were no arrests right away. You know, the police were not talking about leads or likely suspects. So Dan had this big group of friends spread out across the entire country and people were asking, you know, how could this have happened? Because young, prominent law professors just don't get murdered in their driveways on a a sunny friday morning in july you know it just doesn't happen so the fact that dan had been involved with this case involving some kind of criminal elements and some guys who had even been involved in these cases where marriages uh you know unhappy marriages were being broken up through violence uh that set off people's alarm bells and they got in touch with matt now The Proudfather case doesn't actually have anything to do with why Dan was murdered, but it set Matt off down this course. And then pretty quickly, he roped me in.
0: Did people think initially that Dan Markell was killed because of this case? Because, you know, they say, oh, well, you know, he had enemies. But like you said, he wasn't some sinister character that was going around representing you know the goddies of the world where he would have enemies so do, did people initially think that it could be related to this case
1: you know a lot it depends on the person you know it, people really didn't know what to think because it was such an unlikely thing to happen you know there there are communities in this country of course where people get touched by violence pretty frequently uh the communities around Dan Markell were were, were not those so you know we heard Multiple times, uh, at least two uh, that I can think of right now. But I think more than that, people say things like murder isn't in my vocabulary or I just you know, this is, you know, it's just kind of unthinkable that this would happen to people I know, Um, because for, you know, for people in Dan's world, uh, you know, and I think the world that probably a lot of people listening to this podcast live in, you know, we're, we're not familiar, we're not acquainted personally with things like murder and, you know, gun violence, you know, in, you know, with, with our friends and family. Uh, and, and so people didn't know what to think. There were suspicions that maybe it had to do with the prod father case. There were suspicions that maybe it had to do with the disgruntled student of Dan's, uh, at FSU where he taught, uh, there was a, a kind of brief idea that maybe it could have been as simple as road rage, you know Dan cut someone off on his way back from the gym to his house, and that person followed him home and shot him uh you know and then there were people who suspected that it might have something to do with his divorce, and that's ultimately where the the Tallahassee police came out in their charging documents uh and and where the prosecutors have have gotten at least partially.
0: Yeah, that, that that case is so uh, bizarre in that it does seem like such a stretch. So you've got Wendy and Dan are married, they get divorced, and it's acrimonious because Wendy does not want to live in Tallahassee where she was living with him and raising their children. She wants to live in Miami where her family lives. So that's sort of the Big problem in the divorce is that she really, really doesn't want to stay in Tallahassee. And her family is very close and they want her to be in Miami as well. So, you know, to me, like you're describing it, you know, here's just a guy that drops his kids off at school, goes to the gym, and they get shot in his driveway. And to, to, to where it twists and turns to go to the former brother in law who's having an affair with an office worker who knows these criminals. I mean, it's like seven steps removed. So it could have really been the perfect crime. I mean,
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, depending on sort of what theory of the case you subscribe to, because obviously the case is still, um, you know, the investigation is still ongoing. The, the, the legal process is still very much ongoing, but yeah, if, if you subscribe to the theory that, you know, the police have, at least in, in, you know, in some of their documents, um, then yes, people have gotten away with the murder. The people who planned the murder have gotten away with the murder. Uh, you know, according to that theory. So, um, yeah, so yeah, saying a perfect crime, um, it it may very well have have been one.
0: Let's talk about who the police suspect is the mastermind behind the whole thing, which is Charlie Wendy's brother. Um, to me, he just comes across as quite a character to put it nicely. This is a guy who's a very well-respected periodontist, right? He's a, he's a specialty dentist. That's right. He's Um, a periodontist. Yes. And so he, but he comes across as, you know, I don't know. He just comes across very like typical single guy trying to overcompensate. Like he's got, you know, the flashy car and he's named himself the maestro and, you know, asked people to refer to him as the maestro and has a car tag that says the maestro, which I'm like, is he into music? I don't quite understand that aspect of it. It was kind of silly. And, but he comes across kind of as a, um, I don't even know how to describe the guy he just comes across as somebody kind of unlikable, I guess, and that he's very arrogant. And you know, if you believe how the police says it, he decides that he's going to do anything he can to get his sister and the kid's back to Miami. And the only way to do that, of course, is to get rid of her ex-husband who's holding her down there in Tallahassee. By the way, they act like Tallahassee is like you know, going to Syria or something. They act like it's the, the the worst place in the world to live. And I'm like, Tallahassee just gets, gets a bad break in this podcast because they act like they, it's so horrible. But I guess for them, compared to Miami, it's the end-all be-all. So Charlie, so he comes across... Who always gets what he wants? And he uh, has a, quote, romantic relationship with this girl in his office who knows these criminals. Now, my question to you is, how do you think this conversation goes? He's talking to his girlfriend. And he says, like, hey, you happen to have a boyfriend that's in the Latin Kings or his friends in the Latin Kings. Do you think they could do a hit for me? Like, I mean, how? how I guess I just like you're saying this t- murder doesn't come into my vocabulary in everyday world so how does that leap get made
1: uh, i have no idea <laughs> you know i think i think one of the well i just would say that you know th- there is a lot that we know about how the police and prosecution feel about this case and there's a lot that we don't so you know charlie has not been charged with any crime you know there is a there is an affidavit an arrest affidavit that was never Acted upon by the prosecution for Charlie's arrest, saying that Charlie was responsible for the murder of Dan Markel, along with Catherine Magbanua, <laughs> Sigfredo Garcia, and Luis Rivera, all of whom have been charged with first degree murder. Um, and and Luis Rivera pled guilty to second degree murder and is is going to be a star witness in the trial of Garcia and Magbanua. But we don't we don't really know. You know, there there's no we don't really know how the mechanism of any of this went down if it did, um, you know, with, with Charlie and Katie or with, you know, how this, how, how an idea to kill Dan Markell was cooked up by whoever killed him. You know, they're, they're great unknowns in this case. So in, in a way it's, it's something that Matt and I wrestled with. On the one hand, we had this kind of riches of documentary evidence at our disposal, you know, getting, Wiretaps in a case that's still ongoing is really, really rare. You know, so we had we had hours and hours of wiretaps from a, a Florida Department of Law enforcement wiretap operation on the phones of Charlie uh, and Katie Magbanawa. Um, so we got really an intimate portrait of their lives around the time that just just before the first arrests were made and, and a lot of what police say is kind of talking in code, but clearly they're trying to navigate a situation where there's an undercover sting operation, too. Um, so we have that, which is like, wow. You are, you are in these people's lives. You hear when they're, you know, you, you hear when Charlie's calling his mom and they're, you know, and they're talking about how to deal with this undercover sting situation, which of course they don't know is an undercover sting operation. So basically what, what, what happened at some point, the, you know, law enforcement, in this case, the FBI sent an undercover agent to try to gin up activity where the Adelson family would incriminate themselves. Um, so a man approached Donna Adelson on the street in South Beach in Miami uh and and handed her uh a, a press release on Dan Markell's murder and requested $5,000 kind of it sounded like for Louis Rivera. Um and Donna was quite confused uh or seemed quite confused and then she and she set off this chain of events where she and Charlie and Charlie and Katie and uh several other people were kind of talking about how to deal with this situation, you know, where they thought they were being blackmailed. Although Charlie also thought that at some point that this could be an FBI sting operation and and he was correct about that. So yeah, like, wow, you get, you get all of that evidence, but how anyone came up with this idea, how people said, you know what, today's the day, you know, we're going to, we, we think that we've exhausted whatever other options we have, and we're going to, we're now going to kill Dan Markell, you know, whoever made that decision. You know, I have no better idea than you do. You know, uh, there's no, there's no police document. There's no prosecutorial document that I know of. Um, and, and I'm not sure that the, the police at this point really know how that decision was made. I think if they did, we would probably see more people who'd been arrested.
0: Wow. It's so much. It's so much. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by
2: HP Plus. In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP Plus. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh. That is pretty smart. Get 6 free months of instant ink when you choose HP Plus.
0: Conditions apply. Visit hp.com/smart for details. Okay, we're back. You were just talking about the wiretaps, and I was going to ask you about that. How on earth and maybe this is a Florida thing, that you could get all these wiretaps. I mean, sometimes you can't get wiretaps for think, cases that are 20 years old. How on earth did you guys come across all this information or is it just readily available to the public?
1: It's it's not exactly readily available to the public, but on the one, one part of it is that Florida has very good open records laws uh, and just generally kind of an open judicial system. So you can... You know, you can walk into a courtroom in Florida with a with a big shotgun mic and a recorder and just go to town. You know, there there are states where you can't do that. Yeah. And, you know, and it goes down to also kind of what uh, what you can get from police and prosecution. Um, you know, that that's part of the answer. So we did. So we got those wiretaps from the prosecutor's office and we got a lot of the kind of documentary Evidence from the prosecutor's office, and that was all stuff that they were sharing in discovery with the defense lawyers. Um, you know, of course, you also have to have people who are willing to give you that information, and they were willing to give us that information. I think, I think they are frustrated. At least some people in the prosecutor's office are frustrated at the slow progress of this case. The fact that you know you can go and talk to Georgia Capelman, who's the lead prosecutor. Uh, on the case, uh, as we did. And she will tell you that the three people who they've charged are not the, the be all and end all of the case. You know, she says, she thinks that Charlie Adelson and Donna Adelson, you know, uh, planned the murder of Dan Markel. You know, that's, that's her theory of the case. So then she's the lead prosecutor and she's not able to charge those people, uh, you know, and, and try to prove that in court. So I think they have used, you know media outlets, whether it's us or Dateline, NBC or Twenty Twenty, to try to get the word out about this case in as vivid a way as possible, and hope that someone else comes forward. There's some other break in the case, you know, that allows them to kind of fully unravel this murder-for-hire plot.
0: Yeah, you know, and what I thought was interesting too is, and I was going to ask you this as a as a journalist, um, Matthew said. On that last episode, he said that he, the way he got to speak to Wendy was that he friended her on Instagram, I guess, maybe Facebook, but I think Instagram. And he said they had friends in common and he friended her and she accepted it. And he thought, well, after a few days, maybe I shouldn't just be creeping. I should alert her that I'm a journalist. And I was just wondering, like, how has the the popularity and the rise of social media helped you as a journalist? Or how often does that happen, where you can just literally go and friend someone on Instagram and, and get it attached to a big story that you're working on?
1: Oh yeah, it's it's great. I mean, I use it, and I'm sure Matt does in every story. In that case, it was actually Marshall, our our executive producer at Wondery, who did that because it it was just such an all hands on deck effort in these oh. last, the last couple of months. So. Um, Marshall was the one who actually had the the connections, uh, to Wendy and, oh, okay. and was the one who ended up speaking to her. Matt and I have actually never spoken to Wendy. Matt's spoken to her lawyer a couple times, um, you know, just to, to reach out for, for an interview, you know, which she, which she declined and she ended up declining to Marshall also. But yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, being able to, part of your job as a journalist is to track people down and, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and everything else just uh, are a great way to find people especially you know you can imagine if you're trying to track down like a, you know in in this case we knew that Luis Rivera was was incarcerated in federal prison but imagine trying to track you just know someone's name is Luis Rivera who's involved in a crime i mean there must be you know 2000 people named Luis Rivera in South Florida alone you know it'd be it would take forever to do it just calling you know, looking at a white pages and calling numbers, um, you know, things like Facebook and Instagram, you can, you know, right away, figure out, you know, where, you know, whose people's, who people's friends are, you know, how they're all connected. So yeah, it's, a, it's a great reporting tool.
0: Well, I thought it was pretty funny. Um, when they were talking about when they went to, um, Tallahassee to kill Dan Markel, and it really kind of played out like a, um, like bumbling criminals, right? And they were in the car. And first thing that happens is um, one of them accidentally sets the gun off that shoots the gas line. So then they have to go and fix the gas line on their rental car. And then um, Lewis... No. Yes. Lewis takes a picture because he sees something really cool. He takes a picture of it and posts that he's in Tallahassee. And then Katie calls up her boyfriend and says, what's wrong with him? Like, you can't say you're in Tallahassee. He's like, oh, whoops. Takes the picture down. And I think that's such an interesting part of the way things can be figured out these days. Right. Like if he's going to be dumb and post a picture that he's in Tallahassee at the time of the murder, You know, I just thought that was kind of a a funny aspect of the story of of the world we live in now, you know, where you have to be careful about what you post and where you post and where you were and social media can follow you and find your location, whether you know it or not.
1: Oh, yeah, totally. I I did an interview, actually didn't end up being part of the podcast with an attorney who represented Luis Rivera in his racketeering case, which predated the murder. And he told me, he said something like, you know, half of these guys get caught because of social media. I always say, you know, stay off social media. So yeah, you, you do something like uh, Louis Rivera, took a picture of an owl and posted it on Instagram. I think it was on Twitter uh, or Instagram, but yeah, you can, when you, when you take a picture on a camera and you post it to a social media service, it's really easy to figure out where you took it. And so if they were going to claim that or, you know, if he was going to claim that he had never been to Tallahassee or hadn't been to Tallahassee on that day, uh, there was a pretty pretty strong piece of evidence that he had.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I found that I, I thought it was kind of like a you know, like a, a cop movie where you have the bumbling criminals in the car, like fumbling for the gun and and shooting a hole in the car. Um, But Luis Rivera, you know, so he says Sigfredo was the gunman because, of course, he's not going to say it's him. But he's a, you know, well-known member. I I mean, you know, confirmed member of the Latin Kings. But I guess he was in the Latin Kings. He wasn't necessarily a murderer, per se. He was in the uh, maybe the drug dealing side of the gang. So neither one of them were, uh, you know, hardened criminals, you know, respected hitmen.
1: Right. No, that's that's completely true. Yeah. Lewis was was um, the Inca. So the, the head of the North Miami tribe of the Latin kings, which, you know, which sounds kind of like a big title. But I, I think in truth, it was it was not a very big organization that he was uh, that he was head of. And, and he describes himself in his, you know, in his proffer, uh, which we have and, and we use quite a bit in the podcast. He describes himself as a jack boy. So his you know that he robs drug dealers. So he's less a drug dealer himself than someone who robs drug dealers. Oh,
2: um, but okay. yeah,
1: he doesn't. Uh, both he and Garcia have have pretty extensive arrest records. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right. They don't have things like murder, um, you know, in their you know in their background. And and neither of them, uh, we don't have any evidence that either of them ever carried out a hit or thought about carrying out a hit or anything like that before this.
0: Yeah, uh, and they were doing it for. If you believe what the prosecution says that they're they're doing it for just five thousand um, dollars, and so but my question is, how does Katie convince her boyfriend to do this? She says, um, "Okay," to her boyfriend Sigfredo. She says, um, "Hey, I'm also on the side getting with this high priced, fam- you know, fancy dentist. So he'll give us five thousand dollars if you'll go and kill his ex brother in law. To me, that's where I just cannot." I, I think that's all what happened. But I just can't get around how the mom was chatting with the son, who's a dentist, and says, I wish we knew somebody that could kill Dan Markel so that Wendy can move here and the grandchildren could be here. That's what I just like. That's where you become like this really, really. And I hope someone is making it into a movie because it's so unbelievable. It's It's like it's always like truth is stranger than fiction.
1: Yeah, I you know how how any of these conversations went down, you know, if they did. Uh you know, I I I don't know. You know, the for it, it was a little more than $5,000. I think that the allegation is that in the end it was 100,000 all in split oh. split between the three of them. Um but still, yeah, not in terms of the risk that you're putting yourself in. Uh, and now, you know, if if the one person is pled guilty, but you know Garcia and Meg have both pled not guilty, so they say they're they're not involved in any way. But if they were, uh, that's a lot of risk you're putting yourself in committing a murder. Um, you know, it's a it's a capital crime in Florida. So, yes, to hundred thousand dollars split three ways, uh, it really doesn't start. It starts not to seem like a lot of money uh, when you're talking about something like this. But yeah, I don't. As I said, you know, this will be something that we, if there is a trial in June and all signs point to there being a trial, and if there are more trials in the future, you know, maybe some of this will come out and Matt and I will be totally fascinated to hear, you know, how, how any of this happened, how, you know, yeah, how you even approach someone uh, to talk about, uh, you know, committing murder and, and how you how you know, how you put a price on that, um. I You know, I have I have no idea. You know, it's 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 interesting how many I think we, you know how many contract killing cases are actually a, a police, you know, an undercover police agent. You know, it seems like people get caught a lot for trying to plan a murder for hire. And the person they think is a hitman is actually an undercover cop. And that's how they get caught. Um, you know, in this case, if. Uh, you know whoever whoever planned the murder uh did not seem to trigger that with an undercover cop and seemed to actually find uh, you know a couple guys who yeah while while seemingly totally bumbling and right out of the movie fargo um, and like almost comedic in in their ineptitude uh actually you know did did the job that they were hired to do and you know and got away with it for a really long time,
0: yeah, true, oh um. The the big question, I guess, is did Wendy know about it? And I I think all signs point to she had no idea. I I think when they interviewed her and they, you know, let her know that he had been killed and they interviewed her and people said, Oh, she came across as like not upset or not shocked. I think that she was never necessarily in love with him, was married to him, and was had been in a contentious divorce with him. So she wasn't I think she was aptly shocked that he was murdered, and I don't think she had anything to do with it. I think she just necessarily wasn't completely devastated. It wasn't the love of her life that had been shot down in front of her. So I think that her, you know, who knows what your reaction is, right? So I don't know. Is your is your personal feeling that she knew anything about it at all?
1: Mm-hmm. I really uh, like to stick to the facts uh, when with <laughs> something like this for, you know, for any number of reasons. I guess I don't really have personal feelings about it because, you know, it's either something that happened or it didn't. We know that she has not been as far as far as we know, I should say, uh, you know, she has not been a target, a suspect in the case, you know, from the police and prosecution. There are places you can go online. Uh, and and read a lot of speculation uh, from people who think that that wendy uh did know something about the murder um but the fact is the kind of bright glaring fact right now is that as far as anyone knows she's never been a suspect in the case you know whereas clearly charlie you know has been a suspect in the case and there's a you know there was a arrest affidavit issued for him that the prosecution declined to follow up on. So yeah, that definitely puts puts things on the side of Wendy was not involved in any way. But you know, the, these were we're dealing with an active investigation. You know, it could take twists and turns that, you know, none of us can imagine right now.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. Well now you changed my mind. Now I think maybe she did now.
1: <laughs> well, I don't I don't want to change your mind to that. I, I, I have no evidence. Uh, all all the evidence I have is that she, you know, she's not someone who police and prosecutors think was involved in the murder. Um, but I just, you know, I think it's just in a case like this, it's an ongoing investigation. You know, it's been so, it's so twisty and turny. Who knows in, in what direction it's going to lead. But yeah, right. I mean, Wendy has, as far as we know, never been a suspect. And um and, and we have no reason to think that she had anything to do with the murder.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. We're going to take another quick break.
2: Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action
0: today. Okay, we're back. Here's my summary of it, and you tell me if this is right. One of the shooters, uh, Lewis, has confessed and all the others deny it altogether. Charlie, the dentist's brother, has the maestro, orchestrated the hit through one of the hitman's girlfriends, who he was also sleeping with. Wendy's parents, at least the mother, seem to be in the know. The older brother, Rob, knows nothing, but he does suspect that the family's probably involved and the poor parents of Dan Markel don't know why their son was killed still and they never get to see their grandchildren. So that's my takeaway and that to me is the saddest part that Dan Markel's parents never get to see the grandchildren.
1: Yeah, um you know that's that's obvious. I w- I would I would just stick an allegedly in front of uh, the the involvement of the Adelson family since have yes. been charged. Right. But um but yeah, the, we you know we visited with Ruth and Phil Markel, Dan's parents in Toronto. and it's a I mean, just an incredibly difficult, terrible situation for them. You know, they lost their son um, you know in a murder, shocking murder five years ago now. And yeah, and for the last three years, you know they say they they haven't seen you know Dan's kids, you know their their two of their grandchildren. Um, and that's, you know, that's a kind of thing between them and Wendy. Um, you know, we know that Wendy has changed the, the children's last names from, from Markel to Adelson. And that for for whatever reason, she does not want them to see Ruth and Phil at this time. So, yeah, it is. Uh, it's awful. Uh, you know, in, in Florida, people, people have asked me a few times after the podcast came out you know, do Ruth and Phil have any kind of rights themselves to kind of force a visit? And, and from my understanding in Florida, there, there are no grandparents' oh. rights. So oh. it's, you know, it's the, the parents'
0: decision. Um, well, that's really, really sad for them. they they've suffered uh, quite a bit, you know, uh, one thing after another.
1: Yeah, no, it's a, uh, it's, it's really an unbelievably terrible situation. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I think they're they're doing what they can, um, you know, and obviously watching the developments in this case extremely closely, uh, you know, and I'm sure they will be there at the trial in June.
0: Yeah. So speaking of that, so over my dead body now, is this going to be an ongoing series where each season will be a different case or are you going to continue to cover this case?
1: So my understanding is each season will be a different case. So I I think Matt and I will continue to cover this case as long as it's going on, um, you know, adding kind of updates to season one of Over My Dead Body. But I I believe that there are at least one and maybe two seasons of Over My Dead Body that are already in production involving other reporters and hosts. Um, So, you know, it'll be kind of a, it'll be kind of an anthology series. So, you know, with like, you know like we see on tv like true detective right so it you know matthew mcconaughey and woody harrelson didn't come back for season 2 but it you know but the it's still the second season it shares uh, you know the same production company and some of the same creators and and the same kind of feel so i think i think you can get ready for a season 2 of over my dead body that'll be a, a case a, another crime case another probably fantastic Twisty, turny kind of—you can't believe every turn—crime case, but uh, that it'll it'll be a different story.
0: Okay, and so when this trial happened, the trial that's coming up in June—that's for Lewis.
1: No, so Lewis. Act, Lewis has the the justice system is is pretty much done with Lewis. Lewis. Lewis pled guilty to second degree murder. He was sentenced to, um, well, he was sentenced to to nineteen years for the murder. But in effect, he got actually only additional seven years because he was already in in prison by okay. the time he was charged with the murder for his Latin King activities. So he he'd been. He was serving uh, a twelve-year sentence, so so in, in all, he will serve uh, nineteen years uh, in federal prison for both the racketeering case and the murder case. He, in exchange for that, he's going to testify in the trial. So the trial in June is a trial of both Sigfredo Garcia and Catherine McBanawa, right? And they're being tried for on on a number of charges, I think, but but all all murder charges for Dan.
0: That's right. Because people were saying, I mean, and you were saying in the podcast that she had been offered a a plea deal more than once and she wouldn't take it. So you kind of wonder why not? Why why won't she take it?
1: It's it's one of the great mysteries of this case. You know, as I said, you know, uh, the questions you were asking me that I, you know, I couldn't even begin to answer about how the kind of thinking through of this murder conspiracy went down. Um, You know, that's obviously a huge kind of unknown and mystery and subject of, you know, different opinions. But the kind of one small mystery that kind of is the key to the whole case is, yeah, Catherine McBanlaw, according to both prosecutors and her lawyers, has been offered an immunity deal, uh, you know, to testify. And she has not taken it. And according to her lawyers, the reason is because she has nothing to do with the murder. So she has she can't say anything about it. You know, it would be like asking you or me, you know, how the murder went down. If you, you know, of course, her, of course her lawyers are going to say that uh, she's pled not guilty. Um, but yeah, the the prosecution, they, if, if they have ideas about why she turned down the immunity deal, they aren't telling them to people like me and Matt, because it's, it's a big mystery um, for why, you know, what, if, if she did, help plan the murder. And she did plan the murder for other people. And she did plan the murder for Charlie Adelson as that uh, police affidavit claimed. Then man, why isn't she, why isn't she taking the deal and why is she putting herself at such risk? um, And that, you know, that no one
0: has any idea about. It was a full immunity deal. So she would be out of jail and free as a bird if she just said what she knows.
1: As far as I know, you know, the both both prosecution and defense have used the word immunity. You know, I haven't seen documents or, or, you know, I don't know exactly what what sort of deal was offered. But when I hear immunity, that's that's what I think.
0: Okay. So you guys will definitely be covering that. This, this is going to just, it just gets more and more and more. Like, I can't wait to see what's going to happen this summer.
1: Yeah, no. And, and look, you know, we, Matt and I are in touch with a lot of people about this case, you know, currently, you know, pe- some people who were on the podcast, some people who are pretty intimately involved with the case who are not, who were not involved with the podcast, or I should say, we're, were not interviewed on the record for the podcasts um, and there's a split. Between people who follow this case, who may not have direct knowledge of the workings of the the police and prosecution, but some people are 100% convinced that on June 3rd, there's going to be a trial. uh, And some people are, let's call it 95% convinced that there is never going to be a trial and that there will either be, well, I guess that there will be plea deals struck by both uh, Katie Magbanawa and Sigfredo Garcia to give information to lead to arrests of other people. Um, so we're going to see, but, but it's a, a, you know, among people who watch this case really closely, who have some stake in the case, uh, there's a real division, you know, behind the scenes of, of what people think is going to happen.
0: Well, I can't wait, um, when it's going to pop up on my podcast app to say, you know, season one over my dead body, you know, update, that'll be very exciting. Um, Okay, so that leads me to my final question that I always ask of my guest, which is in your spare time, if you have time and you listen to podcasts, what podcast do you like?
1: Sure, yeah. Well, I'm a you know, I I like all sorts of podcasts. So I I listen pretty much every week to the you know, the Slate Culture Gab Fest. I like the Slate podcasts, which are you know completely different from what what we did, but you know, I I I like three smart people talking in a room. And, uh, you know, and I, I love hearing those three people every week. Um, you know, I, I also do really like, you know, narrative true crime podcasts. Um, I, you know, I thought season two of In the Dark was terrific. Um, yes. you know, very, very, very very different from what we did, um, but, you know, extraordinary and, and seems to have had like a real uh, impact on on that case and in that community, you know, I wonder E's first blockbuster true crime podcast, dirty John, I thought was terrific. And, you know, had kind of the mother of all twists at the end um, that, you know, I totally did not see coming and was really the first podcast I'd heard that had that kind of structure where, uh, you know, it was structured like a great thriller.
0: Yes. Um, Yes. It was amazing. And it, um, you know, Like you always say, the book is better than the movie. In this situation, the podcast is better than the TV show.
1: Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I haven't I haven't seen the TV show, although I I have heard that the TV show is still pretty good.
0: It was pretty good, but just not as good as the podcast. Mm -hmm. And what else?
1: You know i I I listen to you know I I I write about politics, so yeah, I, I I listen to a lot of I listen to the Weeds, you know, Vox's The Weeds podcast. I listen to Slate's Political Gab Fest. I listen to 538's podcast, you know, just, just to kind of hear smart people, you know, hear their opinions. And, and I think like all of us with podcasts, it's just, you know, I, I bike to work and, you know, I have my, you know, like exercise earbuds in and I'm, you know, I get half an hour 40 minutes of listening a day in like that, you know, just that's, that's the, the beauty of podcasts is a lot of the things that you could sit there in front of your computer and be reading editorials or commentary. You know, you, you can get a lot of that while you're on the go, while you're washing dishes. Um, so yeah, I find myself I, long before I started making podcasts, I was someone who was kind of increasingly listening to podcasts. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the, uh, the, some of what pineapple street, media has done. I really liked their podcast on Heaven's Gate. I thought that Ooh. was a pretty fascinating podcast.
0: I uh, loved that one. Yes.
1: And and I thought their, their recent, the Surviving Y2K podcast was really good. Uh, re- also kind of really innovative in its storytelling about, uh, you know, sort of a, a historical event that really all of us kind of instantly forgot and reexamining that and, and looking at all these different, very different stories that intersected over that. Yeah. Uh, So that's what I recommend.
0: Yeah. um, Dan Taberski. I I loved his uh, missing Richard Simmons as well. And then the surviving Y2K, I thought, well, this is going to be weird. Um, But the way that he did all those different stories, you're right. It was, it was very different. I loved that one too.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I think, um, yeah, that, that was. I think, yeah, both of both of his podcasts, "Missing Richard Simmons" and "Surviving Y Two K," have just been, I think, really different from anything I'd ever heard in a podcast. And and that's yeah, you know, that's also like exciting about podcasts right now. There's so many of them. It's the the industry's growing so much that, you know, it, but it's still young enough that you can kind of stumble upon really really new kinds of storytelling all the time.
0: Right. And that's what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to just sort of constantly find new and interesting things. And while I I kind of stick to a lot of the same genres, like something like Heaven's Gate was told so differently. And I I feel like I learned so much from that podcast that I didn't really know because you just see what's on the news, right? Like the, the people that, you know, with the purple shrouds and the Nike tennis shoes and, you know, but you didn't really find out the origin of it. And that's, you're exactly right. That's why listening to these things is, is different than just sitting and reading about it on your computer, because you can just like put it on in your kitchen while you're doing the dishes and, and, and learn something, you know, it's good. Uh, dinner party conversation. I'm just, just kidding. That's terrible. Hey, let's talk about murder.
1: Yeah, well, that's, that sounds like a good dinner party.
0: <laughs> that's what I do anyway, whether anybody wants to listen to me talk about it or not. Um, well, this has been great, and I uh, would recommend a political podcast to you that comes from uh, my network. It's called Dame It All to Hell. You give that one a listen. It's a Republican and a Democrat woman, and they kind of talk about each side's about a lot of women's issues, and it's it's pretty entertaining as well. I think you would like it. Great. Pl- plug in. To Plugging in. my network here. Um, but thank you very much. And I appreciate you spending the time uh, chatting with me about Over My Dead Body. And for anybody who hasn't listened, there have been some spoilers in this, but you really can't even grasp all the twists and turns. We, I mean, I still have like six more twists and turns that we didn't even cover. So make sure to go and listen to it and you will definitely not be disappointed. And I look forward to hearing your updates from the trial.
1: Great, thanks so much. We're 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 looking forward to you hearing them and and everyone hearing them.
0: And tell everybody where we can find out more about the podcast and about uh, you personally. Sure. Well,
1: for for the podcast, you know, go to wondery.com. You know, it's a it's a Wondery podcast. Um, and you know, to obviously to to hear new episodes of the podcast, just, you know, subscribe to Over My Dead Body on you know, on Apple or, or any other podcast app that you use. Uh, you know, for me personally, my my website is ericbensonwriter.com. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a staff writer at Texas Monthly here in, in Austin, which is where I'm coming to you from today. And that's, you know, that's my day job. And, uh, you know, I make true crime podcasts on the side.
0: Oh, I love it. Okay. Thanks very much.
2: Thanks, Mary Payne. Take care.